Welcome to another episode of The Sebastian Show. Today, I get to interview a dear friend of mine, Gary Polson, who is the chairman of Sitcor, a $300 million company here in LA that is a global leader in outsource sales. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this conversation. His story is pretty incredible, and there's a lot for everybody to learn. So let's get right into it. Gary, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you, Sebastian, for having me. Well, this is uh, this is exciting for me on so many fronts. Um, you and I have known each other for 13 years now. Yep. Uh, and you have been such an incredible example to me as a, as a father, as a husband, as a business leader. Uh, I think, you know, your, your example says so much about you. And I hope we can get into that today. And, and hopefully that there are things we can extrapolate that can, that can help others. Um, but I, I want to start with your story growing up. I think that always helps people. You grew up here in L.A., and I'm more of a transplant. I came mm-hmm. from the Pacific Northwest and moved here later years. So what was that like? Describe your childhood growing up in L.A., what you see now versus what you were, what it was like growing up here and, and kind of, um, you know, how that has shaped your perspective on life. Well, for, first of all, thanks for the kind words about, uh, you know, I appreciate your friendship and I love our time together, whether it's fantasy football or <laughs> just hanging out. Got the championship a few years yeah. ago. I'm going to get it again. Um, so I grew up in the San Fernando Valley uh, and, you know, I feel like I won the genetic lottery. I, I grew up in a, a very fortunate situation my parents still alive and they were just mm-hmm. unbelievable people my grandparents all four grandparents were very big in my life and I just had a very fortunate my dad's an incredible example uh, my grandpa Meyer was an incredible example so it was really you know fortunate I didn't realize it at the time but obviously as an adult looking back um it was just, you know, just a nice way to grow up. And, uh, and I grew up in comfortable circumstances. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, kind of had everything I needed. Uh, I didn't even pay. I didn't work through college except for the summers. Uh, and so I knew I'm like that, you know, very rare situation, but I mu- very much appreciate it. And, uh, at the time, uh, just kind of like every other kid, you know, going to school, trying to do well and, and uh, having fun with my friends and, and uh, you know, pretty typical childhood in that way. So you said you grew up that way and you appreciate it now. Did you, f- you feel like you had perspective even when you were a kid to appreciate that? Well, as I, uh, we moved into a nice neighborhood when I was 13, Tarzana. Uh, and at that point I started realizing that I was very lucky. Most of my friends or a lot of them, not most, but a good number of them came from, you know, divorced homes, uh, and dads that weren't around a lot at times. Um, and, and I realized how lucky I was, uh, and both parents still together, both parents still together. My grandparents around Sunday was family day. My friends would come to our house. Everyone did. Um, it was just like, I go, wow, I have it really, really nice. And, and you, you went to Berkeley. Yeah. Got a degree in law. Mm-hmm. 
Not practicing law. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And and really, I, one of my favorite uh, kind of stories that you bring up is your early entrepreneurial journey, right? And, and tell us about what your dad did and what your grandfather did and how that turned into you going down the entrepreneurial path. Well, my, my uh, grandfather was a very entrepreneurial guy. He came to Canada when he was 14, uh, Winnipeg, and uh, he... Where did he immigrate from? He immigrated from, which I guess is Ukraine mm -hmm. area, um, and uh, he went by himself, and then he worked his way up, uh, you know, in, in the business world to have his own business and do quite well for himself. Uh, and then my dad, he started a couple of businesses when he was in his twenties. Uh, they didn't quite work out. Uh, he had to kind of start over again when he was about, um, maybe 32 years old, got a job working for a big real estate company. And actually what he did was he was a, a salesperson at the housing models, the housing, on the how big housing track. And uh, it was a commission-only kind of situation, uh, but he could do real well when times were good. But unfortunately, in you know real estate, it's very cyclical, and, and yep. then he struggled at times. But he was an incredibly hard worker. Uh, he was great with his teams. He built you know sales teams. They'd come over at, and we'd get to meet the people. It was real fun. Uh, tell crazy stories. Calls, right? He had the Sunday night calls. Uh, and listened to the calls. We had no choice. There wasn't a lot to do. <laughs> and it was really interesting to me when I heard my dad talk to his people. And, and I just was fortunate just to be around that. Yeah. My grandfather immigrated from Norway through Canada. Oh, did he? Um, which is interesting. It, it, so your grandfather was entrepreneurial right out the gate, whether by necessity or desire, mm -hmm. one way or the other. And, and you tell a lot of stories about kind of value-based or character-driven decisions that you've made that were really exemplified for you by your, your, your father and your grandfather. But I remember uh, the story about your grandfather and the trailblazers and talking about... Oh, that about was my dad. That was your dad. Okay. That was my dad. And talking about how the owner of the trailblazers, uh, why he was a success and why he did well. Would you mind sharing that story? Sure. It feel like such a good one. Yeah. Uh, the founder where my dad worked for, I don't know, almost 38 years or so, Larwin was the company. They were probably the biggest privately owned home builder in the United States. If they weren't number one, they're very close to it. Um, he owned the Portland Trailblazers. And in 1977, when I was 19 years old, they won the NBA championship with Bill Walton. And Larry Weinberg, the founder, was on TV all the time as they were showing the finals. And it really... Yeah, obviously, as a young guy, piqued my interest. I was starting to think I wanted to get in the business world. So I asked my dad, what made Larry so great in business? Because I want to study what he studied or learn what he learned and, you know, take that path. And my dad was say, told me that it was his integrity, that Larry had the most integrity of any person he ever met. Mm. Well, at the time, that seemed like... <laughs> A lot of people have integrity. What's like, it has to be more than that. Um, and I asked my dad, I said, Dad, it has to be more than that. And he was thinking more and more. And, and, and 
he goes, oh, I know what it is. When Larry gives you his word, you could take it to the bank. <laughs> so I'm thinking, I go, Dad, isn't that the same thing as integrity? <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> I'm sure my dad gave me other answers. I'm sure I pestered him about it, but that stuck in my head. You know, my dad thought very highly of him, Larry. And if that's what he thought, I thought to myself, well, that's good enough for me. And that I'd use, you know, character and integrity to be my calling card, so to speak, in business. That would be the thing that at least until I got some experience that would hopefully get me down the right path. Yeah, and I love that story. And it, it shows up in your own life. And going full circle that a big reason we'll get that a little later but one of the big reasons that uh, I decided to work with you and your organization was because of you the character the person you were mm -hmm. and how that shows up in business but I, I like starting there because so many people are looking for the magic formula for success right this mm. this and, and this hidden thing that you know makes you successful and so when you talk about character-based values that really help support success they don't want to hear it like no I, it can't be that it's got to be something else you know and so I, I always love that story for that reason it's like oh no it's actually the same thing right right well I, I at one time too wanted to find the magic formula <laughs> I think it's probably natural as you go into business you're thinking it's this like a Rubik's Cube you got to figure it out that's how I felt early on that I wasn't doing well my, at the beginning of my business career because I didn't know how the Rubik's Cube worked yes and someone had to show that to me. And um, it was only later that I realized there is no Rubik's Cube magic formula. It's a lot of the typical things that, you know, we were taught when we were young and they're true. It's your character and the work ethic and grit you put in. And when you get knocked down, how you get back up, how you learn and your student mentality. And if you're great at those things, how you connect with people and build relationships. All the things we learned when we were young, and they turned out to be the things that are real important. It's hard for people to hear that, right? They, and they realize it's such, you're exactly right. And, and I would think there is an element of luck, right? I think we would all agree yes. there's absolutely an element of luck. But it, it seems that the pervasive message is it's mostly luck. Or they want to, it's like, well, you, you just got lucky. It's like, no, I mean, luck certainly plays a part. We're lucky that we live in the United States. I would argue, despite how things are being managed, that we're lucky to live in California, in Southern California. So there's certainly an element of luck, but it is those character traits that show up time and time and time again. And, and usually when you start talking to people who are older that have had success, they tried sharing that and the young guy doesn't want to hear it. They're like, no, 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 it can't be those things. What else is it? Uh, and so I, I continually try to hammer that message home because if we get the fundamentals right. Everything else gets easier. Right. And so you, you exited, uh, your, uh, your company before for I think an eight digit X or did very well. You're, you're a chairman and, and owner of a $300 million company. You've been, by all measures, you've been very successful in life, but you didn't start out successful. Even as you said, you hit the genetic lottery, you had a great family, you had great examples, but it wasn't like you didn't struggle both financially and in business. You went through seasons of struggle. And sometimes I feel like we, we miss that. And I want to get into that a little bit because very often we think we make these jumps that, well, of course he succeeded because he had these things, right? It was just handed to you. Um, and I, in, in many cases, you see that with people. And, and I know you well enough to know that wasn't the case. And it doesn't mean you didn't 
have certain privileges and you certainly had great examples, but you also struggle. Can you share some times early in your business career where you thought about giving up or you're like, man, maybe business isn't for me or entrepreneurship is just not going to be the path for me. And specifically, I'm thinking of stories with, with you and Susan and like the, the tension that was there. A lot of those inspired me in my early years of building my business. Cause like, Oh man, this is, this is part of the process. Well, um, you know, no doubt I had a leg up because of the example of my dad and being able to watch them and, and just having the ability to get the education I got. Um, so, and with that, it was still really hard um, <laughs> for me at least. Uh, I didn't, I started my first business at 23, didn't know what I was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, through that experience, got off to a great start the first year and then, you know, unfortunately wasn't consistent with my work ethic uh, and the business went out of business. And at that time, I remember uh, my, I, I just thought I didn't have what it took. I didn't think I'd be good in business. I didn't have what, you know, I remember one time in the car with Susan, um, you know, I was like basically I'll probably like tears in my eyes saying I wasn't good enough. I didn't have what it took to be in business, uh, you know, and, and, and I got down on myself from that. Um, and then even, you know, with the commercial printing, it took a few years to get that going. And I tried other businesses in between and couldn't get them going. And it was a lot. I mean, and, and you know, fortunately, when I, through the reading of successful people that I did when I was younger, um, I knew that success was based on how well you could get through the struggle. Yeah. So I just kept at it, knowing that eventually you know, it, it's going to come together. So, it's so Susan, who's your wife, you guys have been yeah. married for? Uh, 36 years, and we've been together for 41 years. Incredible. So yeah. It's a statistical anomaly in this day and age. But yeah. it, it, it's fair to say, even though she would probably say you came from good stock, <laughs> yeah, you she, she didn't marry into success. Uh, the, yeah, at right? the time, not <laughs> the opposite, yeah. And so that's pretty incredible that she stuck with you yeah. right through that season and and you guys see them together they're an incredible couple and they have three uh, beautiful children who are all successful oh, and grown adults now um but being married <laughs> and trying to start a business and be a success yeah is incredibly stressful yes right? and there's there's those moments when it's like man can i even do this <laughs> maybe i should take the safe route maybe maybe i just go get a secure job and I don't remember all the details. This is coming to me in faint. So if you don't remember the story, you can just pass on it. But something about Yosemite and being like, oh. <laughs> like taking a, a completely different route. It's yeah. like, no, that's not the life I want. What, well, you, well, I would had my, after my biz, first business uh, failed, it rocked me. And it started getting, and I was very stressed through this process. And I wasn't so fun to be with all the time. Um, <laughs> And I remember being uncertain of, of things and also knowing that Susan, I, I got to be realistic with her of what's going to happen. So I remember, and I don't remember what age I was, maybe 25 or so or 26, telling Susan that, look, we got two ways to play this. One, I could get a job like as a teacher in high school, maybe coach some sports uh, we can move up near Yosemite, which I loved, and I'll never be stressed. I'll be home early, and we can have a life like that. <laughs> and 
Um, or I could be the entrepreneurial life, but it's going to take me probably five or six years, even knowing what business I'm going to be in that could lead our family to success. And I'm going to be working a lot. And I'm going to be very stressed. But I want to know what way you, what you want. And Susan goes, <laughs> Gary, I love you. And I want you to do whatever you want to do. I'm thinking, wow, that's wow. pretty good. <laughs> and she goes, but. And I go, ah, stabbed. She goes, but I'm a city girl. I like nice things. So if you're going to be with me, we're living in L.A. You got to make it happen. <laughs> no pressure. So, um, so that was pretty funny. And the rest is history. And the rest so they is say. history. So they say. Yeah. And you made it. So... It, uh, but the, the point of that, though, that I think is important is I, at, even at that time, even now, my relationship with her is, was the most important thing to me. And if she said she wanted to go down door A, I was going down door, down a, a, down door A. If she wanted B, I'd go B. I didn't care. I was going to make a great life of it anyway as long as her and I were good. And I think that's the important thing in... Uh, is that that relationship so important that if you get that right, great. And I'm, you know, my attitude was I could be happy doing anything, living anywhere um, as long as my most important relationship is strong. So, and, and I, I think I want to get into this for a second here because it's a good point, but the, you're one of the most profound impacts on your life and your life decisions is who you decide to get married to. Correct. Right. What went into that decision for you? Because when I see you guys together, it's incredible. 41 years later, you can see in your eyes, she's the love of your life. <laughs> and then there's still a passion and a love there that I yeah. think is super encouraging for a lot of people in a time when you know, things aren't, for a lot of people, that's just not how they look at relationships and marriage right now. And we need great examples of what is it, you know, how do you get through this stuff? So can you talk about that and, and how you knew that, hey, this is who I want to be with? Okay, well, I didn't know. Okay. I mean, just, you know, uh, the great thing is I had great role models uh, with my parents and, and my mom's parents, my grandparents, of what it should be. So, again, uh, that's another reason I won the genetic lottery. A lot of people don't get to see that every day like I did. So it was really important to me to be able to kind of be like, have that life. Um, and your parents now are in their 90s. My, well, my dad's 91, just had his birthday a few weeks ago. My That's mom's incredible. 86. Incredible. And, yeah. they're, obviously and they're doing still great. Amazed. And yeah. they're still amazing people. <laughs> um, when I was, w now, my mom knew Susan before I did because Susan was a friend of my sister's from high school and college. Um, so, but anyway, my mom saw me with Susan when early on. And, you know, said, oh, Gary, you're crazy about her. I could tell. Like, I've never seen you like this. And, and as we were, you know, dating more and more and actually living together for a bit, um, she said that she's right for you. She's the right one. I didn't have that much confidence, you know, because what did I know about, I was like, how do you pick the right person that is going to be with you for 60 years? and have a great relationship. I was less confident in that. I mean, I, you know, I was mad about Susan, but when my mom said that, that gave me the confidence because she knew, mm -hmm. I knew, because she had a great marriage and her parents, 
much. And, and that just gave me a lot of confidence. There's a lot of track record there that you yeah, can lean on. Yeah, I had a lot of trust, but I was a little nervous about it. You know, going before that, like, how do you know? I mean, that's a long time. Yeah. So, so was there anything besides your mom giving a stamp of approval? Were there any things that you were looking at that made you think, yeah, this is who I want to spend the rest of my life with? Yeah. Or maybe it is another frame. Somebody who's in their 20s now, what advice would you give them that, you know, are looking for healthy relationships, looking for stable relationships that want a partner then go with? What kinds of things do you think are important to look for? Well, I think that um, our values were the same. You know, are very similar. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. we just, yeah, we just had the same values, and what we wanted from life was the same. So I guess the same vision of what we wanted our life to be, and the same values. Um, that's real, you know, important. I think we had a good chemistry. Um, that's helpful, but it's really the vision and values, and that was you know, real important. And I think that's what I would say. Uh, well, there's a lot of good data behind what you're saying. The lasting relationships, whether it's business or personal, come down to three dynamics, shared vision, shared values, and shared conflict resolution. Yeah. And getting all three of those right. Yeah. I, I don't know if we were ever so good on the conflict revolution, resolution as, you know, um, we're probably less about that. Um, it's something you learned, obviously, got better at in time. Yeah, yes. never great. Never <laughs> great at it. You know, fortunately, we don't have that many conflicts. We did when we were younger. I mean, we had the period of time, we called them the slab of cheese days. I remember this. When <laughs> um, Brooke and Jack were really little, and I was working tremendous hours. I wasn't around, and Susan had her hands full. And so... Um, that was very stressful. I'm sure there was a lot of, con I know there was a lot of conflict then, but you know, I don't know. We just kind of get through it. We just got to get through it. You had told me, and it's something that I do to this day, but you had told me, um, no matter how hard your day was, and how stressful you were at work, you had a, a habit or routine before you'd get out of the car, you'd listen to a song or you would just decompress yourself so you could reset and walk in yeah. as refreshed as you could be for your, your kids and your yeah. wife. And that stuck with me, something I do to yeah. this day. And I also put the hand on the door. This is corny, and it doesn't always work, but that's in the old days. We, you put the hand on the door and pretend you're getting you know, all this electric, electric energy, so when you come in, you're coming in strong. That was part that. of it, too. I love that. <laughs> well, that, that. I think that is important, uh, little, this little hacks to get yourself reset, because... We don't want to bring the stress and pain of our, our businesses home yeah. to our family. And it's yeah. really easy to do, especially when things are tough. Like you said, the slab of cheese days. You want to explain that story? Because it's a pretty well, funny one. Just one time. This, <laughs> you know, look, even today, sometimes I have a hard time if I'm really, you know, overwhelmed uh, to not bring that home. I mean, that, that's a tough thing. It's something we have to all learn. Yeah. It's a discipline not to bring it to your children or your, you know, so... But um, the slab of cheese was one time I came home, probably nine at night, there was no dinner. And I was, you know, angry that there was no dinner. And Susan was mad that I was angry. So she, she goes, you want dinner? I'll get you dinner. And she went in the refrigerator, got a brand new, you know, slab of cheddar cheese. 
put it on the table that she actually built with her own <laughs> hands and tools because you know, she built our stuff <laughs> and she smashed with the knife and you know gave me here's a slice your, of cheese and here's your dinner <laughs> i was really mad i called my friend brian we i went over i guess we i don't know what would and he calmed me down but i was that was the most mad i ever was now when you look at that story uh, what do you see well first i was so narcissistic and yeah. you know I didn't know how hard it was for Susan raising the kids mm. until Brooke had kids. Mm. And I saw what Brooke goes through. Yeah. Go, oh my gosh, it's so amazingly hard. I didn't see, I didn't go, Susan, I so, feel so bad. I didn't, I was working. I didn't see what you went through. And I was not nice about it and, and supportive as I should have been. I feel really guilty about that. Um, but I was. You're so focused on trying to come through for your family and to be a success in business that it, it wasn't easy for you to step in and see what your wife was going through no. in that same process. Mm -mm. So I, I think so many of us can deal with, right? That's a very normal human experience to put yourself in the, to the practice of putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Right. And so it was, that was a, your lucky grandfather and you were able to see a different well, perspective. I spend a lot more time with my grandkids than I have with my children at the young yeah. ages. And so I see what Brooke every day, the monotony of it when they're really little and, the, you know, they're either sleeping, then you're feeding them, then they're, you know, changing their diaper and then you're over and over and the patience that you have. And, oh, my gosh, it is a tough, tough job. And, and the thing that amazes me is, you know, like your mother, that are raising their children on their own yeah. and having a job and she had a pretty significant job uh, over at Microsoft. And, and so those are the he real heroes of this country, in my view. I 100% agree. The, the, the mothers are the unsung heroes. I don't yeah. think they get nearly as much right. recognition and, and yeah. adoration that they yeah, deserve. Totally. Uh, with Susan or with my daughter, Brooke, I mean, because they're raising our future and it is not easy and how you do it has a big effect on them uh it's a really really difficult job yeah and and my mother single mom as you're pointing out raised joel and i uh, she was uh, an office manager for uh, a dentist and played the role of male and female mm. and had to play both those roles and I, like when i look at even in my own life with casey like she's for the most part got to be a stay-at-home mom and take care of the kids and it's it's a struggle to your point it's like that's not easy right no. having young mm -hmm. kids at home is is really challenging for all the reasons that you you bring in and then you start thinking how are single parents yeah. pulling that off like that's incredible both male or female it just mm -hmm. it tends to be more unfortunately more women that have to, to bear that load but um either way like being a single parent is just it's unbelievable so shout out to all the single parents who are doing mm -hmm. it right out there because it's tough. I know it's tough on many ways. And then yeah, to your point, Casey's mom was also a single parent who was oh, yeah. who worked at, at Microsoft. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. So in both cases, it's just like, wow. Mm -hmm. um, what did you learn being a father? What came out? I mean, I think you're a phenomenal father as well as I was in just how you, the relationship you have with your kids and, and how they've grown up to be awesome adults who are, are you know, contributing to society. What, do, what did you see there? What, what do you learn? What have you learned about parenting? Gosh, it is the toughest job. Um, it's really hard to know if you're doing it right. Uh, hope we did it right. I think we did. Uh, but it's very difficult. Um, 
you just don't know of what's the right thing. You're, God, should I do this or should I do that? And, and it's hard to know if your kids are doing okay. Yeah. I remember asking my mom, I go, how do I know if our kids are turning out okay? <laughs> and my mom goes, what'd she say? <laughs> she goes, well, you look at their friends. If you like their friends, they're doing fine. But if, you know, if they're hanging out with the guys in the black trench coats with the, you know, <laughs> with, you know, that are kind of scary looking and, you know, uh, with all the face piercings, you may want to kind of see how they're doing. Right. Uh, um, that was kind of her response. Yeah, so you're looking at their friends. If you like their friends, then they're fine. Yeah. This was her response. And yeah. that, that made a lot of sense. At least that's a good early indicator. Yeah. Not that we're necessarily against people's trench coats and piercings, yeah. but there's a there is an energy that can come yeah. with that. Well, that in the better. old days, yeah. it was not a, you know, it was less common. Now it's a style thing, so right. you can't go by that now. But in general, the gist is by looking at their friends. 100%. That's a good and, one. And, um, yeah, but the, one of the things that, that uh, you have to learn is patience. And uh, and I remember reading, I think it was in Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He was talking about a man who was very hard on his like 10-year-old child and finally exploded and told the child, do you know what Abraham Lincoln was doing when he was your age? Mm. And the child goes, no, but I know what he was doing when he was your age. <laughs> so I think we tend to are overly harsh on our kids. We judge them like adults. And, and that really impacted me. And, and, I, and, you know, it's about being patient. Now, as a grandfather, I kind of realized that a lot of the things I worried about my kids, you just don't have to worry about. They're going to turn out fine, most likely, if they have sea love and and um, parents that care about them, and by and large, they're going to turn out pretty fine. And and if I'm to infer, you're saying a lot of what they catch is by example. Yes, or how you it's show up. Monkey see, monkey do for the children, and also it's good to let them struggle. Uh, and I see that more as a grandkid. It really impacted me was. Um, when my oldest, Olivia, grand, oldest grandchild, f she was learning to walk. And I remember I had a babysitting her for an hour and we were on the carpet and I was chasing her and she was falling and she was trying to walk and she fell so many times and she kept getting back up. And I kind of thought that w in our DNA is the ability to struggle and overcome it. I don't know what happens later in life when we're, you know, I was such a quitter when I was in high school and, you know, but where that went. But I was the kid that learned how to walk and fell a bunch of times. So I have that in me. Uh, everyone does. And what I realized is the struggle is good. Uh, Olivia uh, now is, you know, all excited about doing the monkey bars. And for months, all she wanted to me to do was take her to do the monkey bars at the park. And, and she could hardly do them. But she was so excited about him, and she was telling her friends to watch how good she was. She'd do like one or two bars and then yell for me to get her because <laughs> so you wouldn't want to fall. So, and, and when I was thinking, I go, this is great because the muscle of learning how to struggle through something and keep at it with enthusiasm, even if it's not going well, is so good. Yes. And then I had some friends that came that literally taught her in the visit and taught her in two seconds how to do the monkey bars. And, 
and and I was kind of disappointed in this in a certain sense because I like her struggling, but a week after you know he left, she couldn't do him again. <laughs> so now she kept struggling at him. I think it's a good thing. The ability to learn how to struggle is real important. And I realize as a grandparent, as a kid, sometimes I stop my kids from struggling because I want them to you know yeah. feel good. Yeah, grandparent, I would never stop them from struggling. Yeah, that's that's such a powerful uh, story, and and it, I think we. As parents, as leaders, as friends, we don't want to see the people in our life struggle, but very often our best life lessons come yeah. through that process. And I learned this a lot from Al, my therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he would say that I'm preventing people from struggling too much. I'm yeah. trying to solve it, fix it. Let them struggle. That's how they learn the most. And, and you know, that helped me a lot. And I, th- and I think the difference is, is, as a parent so far, what I figured out, but I'm early in the process relative to you, is just to figure out the difference between something that's going to have long-term implications versus something that may have short-term pain, but they're going to grow and learn from, yeah. right? We're not saying let people suffer and, and, and to be, um, you know, sadistic about it, but give, give people the space to figure it out. Don't mm-hmm. baby them. Yeah. Right? I agree so. with that. Uh, and, and tell us, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started your own school because you were, I won't fill in the blanks, but you started your own school yeah. and, and I believe originally your kids were involved in the school. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about why you did that? Well, you know, the, um, I wanted my children to have a, uh, religious education and there wasn't really an appropriate school in the area at the time. And uh, at least for elementary school. Uh, and, and so, you know, I was asking other people, like uh, a mentor of mine who I worked for when I was in high school and college, very successful. I said, Howard, why don't you start this school? We need that. And he goes, why don't you? <laughs> You're 30, you know, three years old or whatever. You, why don't you do it? I said, yeah, why don't I do it? Like, so um, my wife and I and, and got some other friends and so let's go do this. And um, very experiential education, a lot like uh, at you know University of Chicago, UCLA. They're kind of uh, uh, Dewey kind of experiential kind of way. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I do think that kids learn in different ways. Not all Montessori of style? No, no. It's more different? that okay. different ex- kids could learn from different experiences. Got it. Some may be by reading. Some may be by activities. And it's based on kind of looking at the whole child, just not how well they read or write or Understood. and all that. And it was a certain kind of education that we really liked. And so we went about it. It was very difficult to do. Um, but I learned a lot from the process uh, and made some great friends through the process. And we educated a lot of people through the process, and I think in a healthy way. So you started a school because there was a need that was needed to be met. Yeah, a need to be met and... Um, I've always loved education. Uh, matter of fact, when I was at Berkeley, I was thinking that maybe one day I, sh- you know, could be the state superintendent of schools or somehow get involved in education. Um, I don't know. Well, I am now. We're going to get to that. I yeah. am now in what I do for work, but yeah. um, but that always has been important to me. Yeah, and it shows up as long as I've known you. And your your heart is always centered in teaching and, and yeah. being an example. Is the school still around? Mm-hmm. Incredible. So in quick math, 25, 30 years. Uh, from 1994, I guess next year will be... 30 years. 30 years next wow. year. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. 
It is. <laughs> and you're a big sports guy, a big L.A. sports guy. Yeah. He's drinking out of a L.A. Dodgers mug and <laughs> love the Lakers and the Rams. Yeah. I love the Rams, but only because well, of you. Well, you got Bobby Wagner back, yeah, I know. so you got to be happy. Ex- oh, am I you guys excited? are looking pretty good with stealing all those draft picks from Denver. Yeah. No, it was, uh, that was uh, <laughs> a haul for sure. Looking forward to it. Hopefully that was fun day. going to the game together, though, when we said Russell Westbrook. Uh, Russell uh, Wilson. Wilson coming back. Yep. That and was we won by experience. That was top three experience of 2020. That whole week, but that, yeah, that was, that was an incredible experience. I love that. Uh, for sure. And it's always good. Seeing you at your home. (laughs) And screaming my head off. (laughs) People don't realize I'm a uh, probably unhealthy obsession with the Hawks, but Mm. uh, it is what it is. So you, so you, this is, you know, for me, this is an interesting point because I, I, I'll stay light on it, but you went into printing, commercial printing. Mm -hmm. You got to know a lot of people in LA business and Hollywood and the sports scene here. You had a couple of stories I'd love for you to go over before I kind of pivot into the, some other things. But two stories that really stand out to me. One is, I believe it was your cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could tell us that story. You were frustrated. You're mm-hmm. working, but you just weren't where you wanted to be. And you're asking for him some, his help. And he's like, nah, I don't, you know, I don't think I can help you. Or, you know, I don't think you're going to like what I have to say. And you're like, dude, come on, help me. Could you tell us that story? Sure. That's always, I love that one. Um, I was struggling uh, in the, pr- uh, the printing business. And when I was, yeah, yeah, I, I thought, that, you know, I didn't have the formula, this right. magic formula. I didn't know what I was doing. So I called my cousin, Danny, uh, who's about 10 years old or very successful. And I asked Danny if he could come to my business and see what I'm doing wrong so he could help me and, f- you know, fix me up, get me on the right track. And he said, no. He says. And it's your cousin. You're like, yeah, he says, you know, he said, no. He's busy with his own business, and he says, I already know what you're doing wrong. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, you, know, you don't really know a printing business. Don't I got to show it to you so you could tell me? He says, no, I already know what you're doing wrong. <laughs> and, and then I, I go, well, and I was a little frustrated that he wouldn't come. I was trying to, you know, talk him into coming. He said, no, no, no. And then I said, okay, well, then tell me what I'm doing wrong. He says, nah, I, I don't want to upset you because you're not going to do it anyway. Yeah. I go, what? Just tell me. I said, you're not going to do it. Why waste the time? So finally he tells me, he says, work harder. <laughs> no, he, no, he goes, he doesn't go work. He goes, do what I do. I go, what do you do? I don't, I've never seen you run a business. He goes, well, everyone knows what I do. I get in at 6. I get in the morning. I'm done at midnight. And Sunday I work eight hours. I go, I could never do that. Are you crazy? I mean, for, you're single, but I have a wife and a kid and and a kid on the way, I, even if I was single, I could never work that hard. He says, that's why I didn't want to tell you. Because how much more can you do? Because yeah. you're going to learn more. He goes, I was, I think, like number one in the city in L.A. in tennis. Not because I was some great athlete. I just hit more tennis balls than everyone. So the more you work, the more you learn, and the more you get done, that'll solve your problems. Yeah. And we live in a, a society right now that hustle culture is kind of, kind of become a taboo negative word and it isn't all about working hard and I think there are truths to that right but I think if I was going to extrapolate the message there it's it's not so much that one is saying you have to work 120 hours to be a success but no. you better be willing to put in the work whatever that is well and at, at times right. when you're under the gun um uh, look, y- if you're working hard and not working on the right things, it's a waste of time. Yep. You could work a lot less, work on the right things. You're going to be a lot more successful. But a lot of times you need to do both. 
and um, to figure out what you don't yeah, know. Yeah, and just to get you over the hump at times. And you you told me this a long time ago, but it also stuck out. So just because of your level of experience and, and, and education in the business world now, you're able to get as much done in eight hours as it used to take you 40 or 50 well, hours. Well, look, I, I felt like if I was in the printing business again, I could probably you know, work a lot less hours and be way better than I was. Um, but it was because you put in those hours right, and figured and I it got out, right? The experience, and I also yeah. matured. Also having children, you, yep. you, you see, you learn a lot from that. Um, oh, yeah, I'm way better and, and more effective with my time. But it, but it takes, you know, learning and it, be, being open-minded to learn. And there's a, there's a principle there that I'm, I'm trying to hammer home, which is, it's the development and the growth that you're pursuing. When you get better at something, it mm -hmm. doesn't take as much time. But if you never invest the effort and energy to get good, yeah. you're, you're never going to get to that point. And that's the, right. that's the investment and loss on the mm -hmm. front end that we don't want to lose in, in the avoidance of hustle culture or working hard. You mm -hmm. are going to have to work hard at things if you want to get good at them. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen anybody ever get really good at something at the top of their class who doesn't work hard at it. Um, one other story... Uh, Tell us about the weekend story, working on the weekend story. You get a phone call on a Saturday, and you're oh. at the beach, I think, with, with Brooke, if I remember correctly. But. Yeah, well, this was uh, um, the week before my cousin. <laughs> so, bam, bam. <laughs> so, I, I, it was the, the Monday I come in uh, the office, and Mari, who was the receptionist at the time, uh, and I, and I got, came in a little late on Monday, goes, oh, my gosh, Kirk Gibson, um, who is a baseball player, is the MVP of the National League in 1988, hit that great home run in the World Series, and I did a joint venture with Kirk uh, uh, to do a um, limited edition lithograph. Uh, and so he would sign them all. We did 1,988 of them. And so in that, I got to know him because he'd only sign like 100 at a time or 200, and I'd go to his place. Uh, he, he rented a home in Brentwood, and I'd go to his place, and he'd sign him, and we got to know each other. So on the Monday, he's calling, and Mari goes, he seemed really angry. And I'm thinking, what could he be angry about? Because I paid him every month, and I, I didn't you know, forget about an appointment I made with him to get some signs, so I couldn't imagine what he would be mad about. And I call him up, and you know he, in very you know, salty language, <laughs> asked me where the hell I was <laughs> on Saturday. This was pre-cell phones, is 1988 or 1989, I guess. And he said that um, I was trying to get a hold of you. And I go Saturday. Oh, I was with Brooke at the beach on Saturday. I took her to the beach. He says what? I, go, I took my you know Brooke to the beach. You know, dads take daughters to the beach. Don't you take? you know, your, your kids to the beach, Kirk? And he goes, losers do on Saturdays. <laughs> Winners do it on Sunday. He goes, you think I was MVP because I was, you know, taking two days off on the weekend? Uh, I was a football player at Michigan State. And he, he was, you know, explaining what he had to go through, which was very impressive. It's a very impressive man, what he was able to achieve. But he was really on me about it. And I'm thinking, like, oh, my gosh. He was a football player at Michigan State, but then injured his knee. And he injured his knee uh, and then ended up playing baseball. As his backup plan. Yeah, and I think he played baseball at Michigan State, too, but he's more of known as a football player. 
but um, I think Jim Leland was his minor league coach, and Leland worked with him after hours all the time to get him caught up, and he would tell that story. But it was, you know, again, that was kind of the thought. Now, to your point, um, you don't want to do that forever. You won't have much of a life, but there are times where you have to, you know, kick it in gear. So I had, you know, but when he told me that, I go, God, what's with him? He's in a bad mood. Yeah. And then with, you Danny know, right Danny you. said it, I'm thinking, Somebody's wait trying a to get to your attention. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, someone's trying to give me a message here. <laughs> I got to pick it up. And it, 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 and just to clarify, some people may hear there and go, oh, that's a toxic message that you have to sell out to be a success or to not care about your family. And it's just to be clear, obviously we're talking about a period of time and I'm going to get to where that led you in a second, but in context, and you, you obviously have an, a very healthy family, incredible kids, incredible wife. It's just knowing and be willing to do what it takes when it's time to do it. And yes. you've already said, it's like not forever, Mm-mm. but know that season. And when you're in that season, own that season. Right. And, and for you, you were a business owner. You weren't an employee of somebody else's company. This was your company and it was going to rise and fall based on your decisions, which is a lot of stress. And so, um, you know, I know. Well, you and also when I went into the business world and it's probably why my first business failed, I didn't want to work a ton. <laughs> I wanted to have, a, you know, a fun life. And I thought I could do it without having to do all that. And I studied business and I studied great people for my, you know, since I was a child. So I felt like I would figure this out. And, and, uh, and then it got to the point after these two conversations, I said, okay, <laughs> I got to, I just got to put in the time right now. You had told me when you were younger that you were pretty emotional and impulsive. And that shocks me. And, yeah. I, and I bring it up because the person I know, the person yeah. I've always known is not emotional. Well, you're passionate, which I love, but you don't, I've never seen you get emotional and make say emotional, irrational things. And you're the farthest thing from impulsive in my book. And so when I heard you say that, I'm like, mm-hmm. whoa, that's a, you put in a lot of work if that's the yes. case. And I bring that up because there are people who are young who probably feel like they're emotional, they're impulsive, they're irrational, and, and they're trying to grow out of it. So what advice would you give to that person? Like, how did you grow out of it? Well, um, it was something I was working on since I was a kid. Um, it was hard for me to sit still and even read, even though I loved reading. Uh, I would just do certain things like I'd read for 10 minutes and I could goof around for a minute or two. It was schoolwork. Um, then I could work myself up to 20 minutes and I could shoot some baskets for a bit. Um, I had to reward myself for sticking to things. Um, and that was when I was young. Um, then some, some part of it was, you know, um, ba- uh, learning boundaries or, you know, having people help you, uh, early on, uh, Susan took over the, the our, ch- our checking account. Um, she took away my ATM, uh, <laughs> and so it, I wasn't able to spend money. And How'd she, you feel about that? No, I needed to do. I needed it. I was not good with my money, yeah. and um, and she would give me money each day uh, for to spend, you know, for that day for breakfast and lunch. Um, and so sometimes you need to do certain things to protect yourself from yourself until you can get your own discipline there. Yeah. And then I just, for me, what works is building my discipline muscle and a routine and sticking to my routine and schedule. And, 
and, uh, and you know, so that's what I had to learn. Uh, I routine and schedule. Routine and schedule. Discipline in other ways. So, so how would you, the discipline muscle, this is a big one, and just as a coach, I see this a lot. Discipline is something a lot of people struggle with. Yeah. How... How can, how can somebody get more disciplined? Or what did you do to yeah. become more disciplined? Well, you know, the, the, one of those, discipline has bad PR. Because <laughs> really? discipline, you discipline your kids when they do wrong. So discipline has a very negative connotation. Right. But I think discipline is what allows you to have a great life. Yes. You know, I, I knew early on, obviously you need discipline to be faithful, to have a great marriage. And, and so that takes discipline. There's good things about discipline. Um but it takes work. So, to, you know, to me, I would, I would suggest to people that, to, that want to work on their discipline, hopefully everyone does, you know, it's based on you. You know, some people, because of the religion, could have dietary laws. Yeah. Or right now it's Ramadan, and it's a good time to fast. You know, if you want to spend the month fasting, that's great discipline. It's very hard to go all day and, and, and uh, all night without food or or um, water or drinking obviously there's other reasons to do it for spiritual reasons and, and 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 others but it's great for people i think um some people like meditation and to meditate the same time every day i think is wonderful to do um it could be working out the same time uh it could be other diet that you could do um to eat a healthy diet uh there's a lot of things you could do for discipline, but I think the more you build the discipline, the better it is. That way, when you get impulsive, when I do, I have the discipline to realize it and not do what I need to do. Um, now, I'm going to be tested Friday because I, I can't go shopping because I want to buy everything. <laughs> my It's my brother's birthday, and his wife and him and Susan and I are going to lunch, and going to be in Beverly Hills. We'll see if I could control myself, <laughs> but hopefully I can. And you practice your kosher, mm -hmm. right? And you, you had explained to me um, that you had picked up kind of practice under Jewish law, mostly for as a discipline thing, yeah. right? There was, there was other elements of it that mm -hmm. you were attracted to, but for you, it was, you know, I don't know necessarily know all the ins and outs of the back end of this or have my own feelings about it, but I'm really doing it as a way to discipline myself. Yeah. I th yeah, a lot of it, you know, primarily at the beginning, it was just to honor my grandfather. Um, and uh, and also, it was good for him, and he was an amazing man, a great grandfather. I guess I want to be like him. Yeah. But the, the thing that really kept me to really want to actually do it is I need discipline. And it's great to know that I can't eat whatever I want or do whatever I want whenever I want, that there's something higher purpose there yes. that... I got to control. And, yeah. and I think, you know, for someone like myself that um, is impulsive, I think it's very good. It's a lot of self-awareness to recognize that. I love that explanation. It was just yeah. like, oh, that totally makes sense. Yeah, and, it it, and so whether it's Latter-day Saints or Seventh-day Adventist or Muslim people, and I'm sure other religions too, um, it's good to do, you know, to follow those things yeah. and do those things, you know, just to connect with your you know, the generations that came before you and also to develop your kind of discipline that I think will help you down the road for whatever you're trying to do. 100%. There's lots of ways to get there, but those are really effective ways for yeah. sure. And that's mm -hmm. cool. I love that. So your business struggles for a while and then it doesn't. You you exit commercial real, uh, printing and you, 
I think you had told me, uh, just one more point I want to get before we get there. You had told me something that also made a lot of sense to me. I'm just thinking these early business lessons that I've learned from you. Um, slow is fast is something that you, you said mm-hmm. to me very early on and it stuck. But um, something else you told me, and, and I back-tested it after you had said it, and I thought about it more and more, and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of truth to this. So if you could just fill in the blanks. You basically were explaining printing worked for you because it was a slow grind. You didn't yeah. come up quick. And that stability or that process for your constitution mm-hmm. really was good for you. And you, you brought up, and I backtested my own life, and I've seen this enough to go, well, I don't know if it's always true, but it's true enough that this is good advice, that people who make money quick lose money quick, and their lives are, are very unstable, right? And I think it's basically well, how you said it. And so, correct me if I said okay, that wrong. Well, I, I, yeah, a little different, I would say it like this, is when I was younger, in my 20s, I was looking at, you know, some very successful men in Los Angeles and trying to figure out how their life was, what what it looked like. I just wanted to learn from successful people. And through that, just as a byproduct, what I realized is that there were some men that were extremely successful, but their lives were chaos, at least in my opinion. You know, their kids were fighting with each other. They're married to their third wife who is younger than their first child. <laughs> and, and I'm going, I don't want my life to be like that. Um, and then there's other people that, you know, had great marriages and the kids loved each other. And it's like, yeah, that's what I want, like my family that I, I grew up. So one of the things I observed, um, and it was maybe not a big enough sample size, but it influenced me, is the difference was the ones that had that great life tended to be in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And the ones that had the craziness tended to be where they could do extremely well doing deals and, and things like that. And, and I'm sure there's plenty of deal guys that could have steady great lives. But what I observed, I saw that. And I knew I had a tendency to be impulsive. So I felt that having that great life, getting in manufacturing would be important. And a mentor of mine, Maury, told me the same thing. When I told him I was worried about my impulsiveness, could ruin my life, he says, well, get in manufacturing. You only make a penny a day. <laughs> you make a lot of pennies over time, but do something like that, and that could, could help you. And so he kind of agreed with what I was thinking. And so I felt like, let me get into manufacturing. And that way I'll, it'll, he said, you know, Maury would say it will, cure you of that impulsiveness yeah beautiful. and it did yeah the grind well, every day and that makes sense to me in in you know looking back at that season of your life so you exit sizable sum of money at that point in your life i think you're in your late 30s early 40s but correct me if i'm wrong you at that point could really do whatever you want right you're financially in a position where it's like hey if i don't want to work again i don't have to and it sounds like for a season you didn't, so fill in the blanks if I'm missing pieces here. But then this opportunity comes up mm-hmm. where it's kind of your, your second career. And going back to some of the things that have come through this is you have a heart to teach. A couple different times you reference, well, I almost became a teacher, started a school. Now you're in a season in your life where you can probably do whatever you want. And you get an opportunity to go work with this company. And, and I'd love for you to tell the, the rest of the story. Work at this company called Sidcor. Mm-hmm. And you're like, ah, I don't know if I really, you know, like I just, I'm good. Like, I don't know if I want to do anything else. So what happened there? What's, what's, let's start with that story. Cause that's, that's a so, fascinating. So, one. um, you know, I was, 
Well, actually, like two days after we sold the commercial printing business, uh, Bram Goldsmith, who was the founder of City National Bank, who was just a mentor of mine and nicely took an interest in me. I don't know why I was such a small customer in the scheme of his life. But he was one of those guys. He just took interest in, in younger people. He called me up to congratulate me. And that he called, it was such an honor to me, and I felt so great. And then he says, look, you think you have a lot of money? You don't. That's what he said. <laughs> Believe me, your wife's going to buy one a bigger house, want this and that. You don't know how long you're going to live. Plus, you f you're starting to know what you're, you know, I was Just like 40. It out. You're starting to know what you need to do as a business. Your, your next act is going to be the real one. Yeah. So don't rest on your laurels. Go find something to do. So it's two days after you. That no, so. was two days. So I was like kind of crushed. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of crushed about it. I go, really? Well, yeah, thank okay. you. <laughs> but but I knew Bram was really wise, and I knew he was right. Um, okay, so that was kind of set in the back of your mind. That hit me right away. But I didn't really wasn't. You sure. know, it's kind of hard to figure out. I was kind of you know. I, w I worked a lot of hours. I had a ton of stress. And just even getting paid from the, you know, the clients is so hard. And, yeah. and the money and making payroll. And I had some moments that just, and I needed to get my rest and sea legs back under me. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a teacher, maybe teach a, you know, Pepperdine or somewhere, or yeah. a Kowloo or something, or whether I would maybe be a high school basketball coach, you know, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but, you know, f one of my investors in Sidcor was, you know, one of the founders. I mean, one of my investors in the printing was a founder of one of the co-founders of Sidcor and wanted me to kind of explore it. And, you know, I was so-so about it at first, but... Um, to want to do something like that right now. I just thought I needed time. It was only two years after so I sold. I was going to ask, so it was two years About after two you years. sold. So you took a couple of years to kind of get your sea legs. Well, I was still on a contract with the, the company that bought. Um, mm. So I was doing stuff. It wasn't like I was doing nothing, but How long not, enough, not enough for my wife. She, you know, the famous saying, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. She told me that. <laughs> Because um, we I was with her too much, I guess, during the lunchtime. She had plenty to do with, you know, because we had a third child and <laughs> was young. And, and so, but I did go visit a, a young man at the time, Jamie Hep, yeah, and visited him at his office to see what, you know, learn more. And it just hit me. He was in Burbank, right? He was in Burbank. Yeah. And it just hit me that, Wow. He is a go-getter and eager, you know, to learn and to grow. Working with him? Wow. That could be right up my alley. Second, what I thought with the business is that it's like getting for these young people a mini MBA in the real world. Yeah. To be able to learn how to sell, which you need no matter what you're going to do in life, you need to learn how to sell. Yep. I don't care if you're going to be a teacher. You got to be able to sell the kids. Teacher, preacher, politician. Anything. Yeah. I don't care if you're going to be architect. If you can't sell the, the someone to buy your design, yeah. it's going to be in the wastebasket. So learning how to sell to me is priority one. Also, at the same time, learning just how to be in a professional environment. 
and then building teams that you get to do if you you know successful. I thought it was great. I thought everything people are learning is like a, a school. And then the other thing, it's I knew the business could be huge, a multi-billion dollar business because the best way, the most important thing to a business is getting new customers, and the best way is with people. Sales. Yeah. I'm going to jump into this, yeah. but I want to go, go back one step for people who are maybe in that season where they're they're looks at, they're looking at exiting a company that they built, and they took you seven years, eight years, ten, ten, ten years, okay. And the company's still around, right? It's still mm -hmm. yeah. so it's owned by R.R. Donnelly. Yeah, okay. print, so one of the bigger company, yeah. Yeah. one of the bigger printing mm -hmm. companies. Makes sense. What made you decide it was time to get out of that industry? Uh, well, I wasn't thinking it at the time, but I was starting to read about the impact on the internet mm. and the digital revolution. Uh, this digital revolution, and I could see it. A lot of it made sense, but a lot of it seemed like science fiction. And this was like late 1990s? Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, like 96 okay. or so. Um, and, and that, wait a minute, you know, when you're reading it, it, it says that, yeah, you're not going to need printed stuff anymore, that you're just going to get it on your phone or your computer and, and people aren't going to need brochures or catalogs. And I'm thinking... That's the case. I could be in real trouble. <laughs> that is not going to be good for me. At least that, what I thought at the time, it got me scared. A little bit like blockchain today is that you yeah. know, there's going to be big uses of it. People can't really find the uses yet, but you know it's going to have a huge impact. And that if blockchain could, you know, it's like trying to make my business obsolete. Hmm, that's not a good because it's 50-50 true, I'm in trouble. I don't want to play those odds. So I felt at the time that this isn't going to be good for me, the internet. And so I might as well, while the going is good, get out and get my nest deck yep. out now rather than wait 30 years yep. and get it out. If this happens, I could kill my nest deck, so to speak. So that kind of got me motivated to uh, make the change. Now, in you know, retrospect, the company's doing more revenue than when I, you know, when I was there. So I maybe overreacted, but. Um, but you weren't entirely wrong. I mean, I know no. a lot of people in the printing space that yeah. their their business was radically changed. Yeah. They adapted, but it has radically yeah, changed, changed from. And I we could have adapted and, and all. And uh, but that's what happened. I got a little scared or Makes a lot sense. scared. You do such a brilliant job of unpacking the competitive advantage of being an outsourced sales and, and marketing company. Can you explain, in the midst of everything that's going on, you really give three reasons why our business is very competitive for somebody young coming in. Can you explain what those three things are? Well, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I, I suggest to people that are thinking about, you know, you are just started or about to start at one of these independent companies is that give it one year your best every day and then decide if this is your cup of tea. The reason for it, it's hard to know what you want to do when you're young. Um, you need experience. So get into something. And I say you win for three reasons. One, you have at least one year on your resume, which shows future employers that you could keep a job. Um, second thing you get is sales skills. And again, like we talked about earlier, no matter what you do, it's invaluable for your future. And the third thing you get is 
because of the environment you're in where every day you have to perform, you have to beat your best and you have to learn attitude, great attitude. You have to learn work ethic. You have to learn um, dealing with rejection and things not going your way. That Those things are so important for your future. That's what determines success. So be, between getting a year on your resume, learning sales, and learning these intangible soft skills, after a year, if, if you want to like it and you think this could be for you, keep on going yeah. and put in that best every day. If not, you got something really good to build upon. And I think that's very valuable. And then from a business standpoint, you know, um, there's a few things that you've, you've outlined that you really liked about the business. One is not can't be obsolete, not going to go obsolete. Mm hmm tend to do well in recessions, right? Fairly recession-proof as far as that can go. Mm -hmm. um, and three, there's always demand, right? Because mm -hmm. sales companies, salespeople are what generate revenue for companies. So there's yeah. usually always demand for that. So from, a, from an economic and in industry standpoint, it's pretty stable. Yeah. When you look at the future... And one other thing too, Sebastian, as you know, we don't charge our clients until we get, get them a customer. Yeah. So there's no risk or upfront costs. So typical, you get, want to get customers, you're going to do a big uh, um, TV campaign. You put up a lot of money. You don't know what the results are. You, it's hard to identify who the customers are. Um, with us, uh, you, there's no, no risk. Right. Indirect versus direct marketing, yeah. and you're able to quantify that. And I think uh, you know, the numbers prove out company continues to grow you guys are doing great mm -hmm. uh, coming out of a pandemic that was pretty scary there for a bit right or it's you're like well when you're in sales and a lot of it is predicated <laughs> upon face-to-face -face sales and you can't right. see people that's pretty scary and you can't be in the store you're right can't be in the store and you can't engage with people yeah. in the same way yeah uh, i thought your leadership through that time period was pretty incredible to be able to watch and just how you navigated and prepared for it. Mm -hmm. Another lesson there is key to timing is preparation. It's like you're, I don't know that you were modeling for a pandemic, no, but wasn't. you were modeling for, hey, if things happen, we need to be ready for it. And mm -hmm. you were ready for it. Yeah. And it was, a, it was pretty incredible to see how decisive you were with your action and how immediately it was like, hey, here's how we're going to do it. How's we're going to play it. And uh, my opinion, uh, company came out much stronger on the other end. Yeah. And uh, back and back on the offensive, which I think is cool. What are you getting excited about in the future? I have a few more questions. I want to get in some rapid fire questions with you. But just when you look at Sidcore, what does your future with Sidcore look like? As much as you want to talk about that, I know your goal is to leave a legacy. I always hear you talk mm -hmm. about that, and that resonates so deeply with me. That's my reason for being here to leave the next generation better than we found it. So, what are you excited about? What are you paying attention to right now? Well, I mean, I'm most excited about all the people we and the culture that we have. I think we've you know, worked really hard for many, many years, many of us, yeah. to get where we're at today. And I think the seeds are so exciting. Yeah. And to me, business and get good people and great culture, you could do anything. And that's what excites me the most. Um, we have a new generation of leadership at Sitcore, led by Vera Quinn. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, our goal or vision is to make our business last for generations to develop people, give them opportunity, uh, you know, in a world that's getting more digitized all the time, we're betting on people. We're going to unleash the power and uniqueness of people to do incredible things. So 
I just love our people. I see the culture. You know, I was in your office and just meeting some great people. It makes me feel, oh, this is awesome. Uh, and so I fit, that's what I'm most excited about. Uh, and our new, you know, and, and Vera and her team, uh, Rich Mangafis and others, I mean, they're doing a spectacular job. Uh, and uh, I just think the future's so bright. Um, there's a lot of things coming as we improve our capabilities. That's what we need to do is innovate, improve our capabilities. We have the people to do it. We have the resources to do it. And I think over the next few years, we're going to see a lot of neat things coming. And I'm really excited what this new generation is going to want to do. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it's, it's a, an exciting time uh, all around. A couple of few rapid fire questions. Um, and you can pass if you don't have an answer. Outside of your grandfather and father, what mentors have had the biggest influence on your life? Uh, well, they were by far, I know, you know, the why. most. We already talked to them a bit, so yeah. Dad. I would say more recently, Dan Fredrickson. Um, Who was the original he, owner of FedEx? No, he was the... the um, Kinko's? Kinko's. He was the, uh, you know, operated that business. Um, uh, great guy. Um, and I've learned a lot from Dan. Uh, he's been, was working with me for most of the time I was CEO at Sikor. He was nice enough to, I mean, to do that. Uh, and I just learned a ton from him of how to build a business of scale like we have. So he, he's been great. Um, early on when I, you know, when I was in college, I, uh, you know, I'm more of a shyer, quieter person. And I didn't think I had the ability to do business. My dad has such big personality, such a big, strong guy. Um, he could say anything to anyone. He's, you know, not fearful at all in that way, or at least I didn't think he was. And, and so I didn't think I had that what it took. But I worked for Howard, who was more my temperament when I was in college, in high school and college. And I felt like, wow, he built an amazing business and and so that gave me that kind of confidence i could do it and he mentored me too uh even when i was first starting my set the pr commercial printing getting into that whether i should do it or not i talked to him about it and got his advice he said definitely go do it you have what it takes you know i, I get hit up regularly with people looking for mentorship and i think there's a likely a void in our society which is why people are looking mm -hmm. for mentors what advice would you give to somebody who is looking for mentors? How do you get a hold of people that are willing to take the time to invest you? Because there's an opportunity cost for them, right? Yeah. So, well, and who know, do you want to get mentorship from? Well, you know, someone that you see what they've done in their life and you, that's what you want. Right. Um, you got to find someone like that. Um, but one of the things like Dan, you know, luckily, you know, Gail Mahalik, who, worked, you know, for Dan, and then went to work for us. Uh, she was the one that set me up with Dan, and, you know, because knew what I was looking for. I needed someone that ran a business from a certain size to multi-billion, so I could learn what to do. Um, but Dan didn't want to um, work with me, and I was, t was told Dan, I think I'd pay him $10,000 a day to help me, so a lot of money. And um, he said he wouldn't even meet with me. <laughs> so then I, Gail, I asked Gail to talk him and just have him lunch. So he had lunch, and I told Dan, look, he goes, I don't want to work. You're going to do whatever you want to do. I don't want to waste my time. I've got better things to do with my time. 
people don't really want advice. They just want to do what they want to do, and they just want something to justify it. Now, it's not me. I go, Dan, listen. If you tell me what to do, I'll, we'll get in a discussion, and if I disagree, I'll give you all the reasons, but at the end of the discussion, if you tell me, do it, I will do it. And I'll tell you what the results were right away. That's my commitment to you. And he didn't really believe it. So he said, I want you to do these three things, right? And tell me how they go. So I, I got back to the office after lunch. I sent him an email to make sure I got the three things right. This is what the three things are. This is when, when I'm going to do it. Did I get it right? Because exactly. So I do them. And I said, okay. And I give him an email back within a week. I did this one, Dan. It worked just like you said, and this is what I learned. I go, Dan, I did this one. It blew up in my face. I don't know if I executed it wrong. It was the wrong idea. And this third one, it worked perfect, and this is what I learned. He writes back, yeah, second idea, I, I gave you bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I learned from it because I felt like whether, whatever Dan tells me, I'm going to learn something. If I try it and it doesn't work, I learn something. If it works, I learn something. The only way I'm going to grow is do something that I normally wouldn't do on my own. 100%. And that's how you keep a good mentor. Oh, uh, that's incredible. That's great advice. Some people will say, well, it wasn't all perfect. Well, nobody's all perfect. No. Right? It's, 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 that's not how it works. But, but being able to respect that yeah. relationship. And with, you don't have to go into details of anything he told you, but did anything he say seem wild to you? Or was that all kind of common sense stuff? You're like, oh, why didn't I think about that? No, no, no nothing seemed wild. But many, many, many times um, Just I didn't agree. Yeah. And I tried. And once in a while I persuaded him to my way. But usually I didn't, and I tried it, and then I, then I could see after I did it why it worked. There's a lot of humility in to, to respecting somebody enough to listen to them and execute fully, even if you go, I don't necessarily agree with this. Yeah. How many times would you say percentage-wise did you not agree and it ended up being the right advice on a percentage level? Well, I would probably didn't agree half the advice he gave, and of the advice he gave, three-quarters of it worked. So that's good math. Yeah. And, and look, you know, Dan is an amazing man. He has incredible character. Um, anyone, I knew people, I had a couple people that worked, because when they sold to FedEx, it moved everyone to Dallas, and most people didn't move from, you know, California. So I was able, fortunately, to get some good Kinko's people, and they admired him like my dad admired Larry, and I knew he was a good man. It and is so that meant a lot. And plus, look what he did over there. Um, him and Paul, they built a huge company that was first class. And their business isn't wildly different than ours, no. from, right? No, they're loosely, there was enough similarities. Dan calls it fraction of the action, meaning Kinko's didn't own the Kinko store. You know, someone like you owned it or yeah. a group of you and Fareed yeah. or different people owned it. So some people started as a copier guy or whatever. And, and so it was, it was, you know, a lot of influence. Yeah. You're dealing with some strong personalities. And so so simil there's a lot of similarity there. That, that a lot of similarities. All right. A couple questions, rapid fire. How do you feel about therapy? Well, like I mentioned, purposely I mentioned it on this that I do therapy. I mentioned Al. Uh, um, he's great. I mentioned therapy because when – I okay, the reason why I did therapy, I was in a board meeting with Dan, and I overreacted to the, um, the private equity group that we had at the time. 
Uh, he, he was in that meeting. And he was in the meeting. He goes, there's something, Gary, that is so unprofessional, how you acted. That temper, that there's, they triggered you. And that, you need therapy. I go, what, Dan, me? I, you know, I'm with Susan forever. I got my friends from childhood. I'm the last person. He goes, no, that behavior was so unprofessional that you need therapy. And, and, I, and, I, and like I said, if you tell me, I'm doing it. So, the, but I, I felt there was a, st- I didn't want to tell anyone. Yeah. I felt embarrassed about it, like there was something wrong with me. But the reason why I talk about therapy all the time, because I think it's great for people, everyone. Well, this is you what know, I wanted you, you to bring You it mentioned up. earlier today in a meeting how important emotional intelligence is. Yeah. But yet all we're trained in school is cognitive intelligence, you know, how to solve problems, how to th- think sequentially and so forth. But nothing on emotional intelligence, but yet most of our success in life and our marriage and our being a parent or building a business, it's based on emotional intelligence. How are you going to learn it? Therapy. Yep. I learned so much. Al helped me tremendously. And so I want, uh, if my wish is that every young person could do therapy. I know it's expensive, so, you know, you may have to save up for it. But I think it's so important. And that's why I mention it, because I think it's so important. I don't want anyone to feel that there's a stigma to it. It's only healthy for you. I feel like the younger generations, there's less stigma. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think it is important to bring up, and that's why I wanted to to tell you, because so many people will avoid getting the help they need out of feeling shame or yeah. like they should be able to figure it out on their own yeah and so i think it's, it's no, so it's, important it's, it's still and it's the one that look just like you my job is to educate people uh and develop them and to be the best version of themselves uh that's why i mentioned there i have to even though i'd prefer not to say anything and but i that's my obligation and it is my humble opinion that i think most if not everyone should have a therapist or a friend or somebody it's a friend i want to be careful with have someone that you can process your shit with. Mm-hmm. It's so important. And evidently, obviously, somebody who's educated and trained to yeah. be able to help you. But I think that's an incredibly important thing. And because of how disconnected we are in our society or, or how, how fear the vulnerability of processing, we don't. And then it, yeah. we don't deal with our shit. It deals with us. So I love that you did that. Give me three books, and don't say how to win friends and influence people. Mm-hmm. Um, give me three other books that you think everyone should read. I know you're a reader, so... Or give me ones that come to mind. If you don't have well, three, you don't have three. Well, uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck, I think, is is fantastic. Um, after that, and How to Win Friends, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> He loves How to Win Friends. Uh, I don't people. think there's a book that I could say is a must, must read. I, I, I really don't think that. Um, those for you that are um, uh, uh, in the Judeo-Christian... Obviously, the Bible, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot in the Quran for those that follow uh, the Islamic faith. Um, a lot of great stuff in, 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 in the Buddhist and Hindu texts that I've read. Um, so I think there's some wisdom in that. Um, but other than that, I don't really you know, see any one book. And How to Win Friends is easily the book you've recommended the most. I know yeah. this about you, which is why I said not yeah. that one, because I, I know yeah, that's the no, one. Yeah, no, I think that has a... What, which book have you read recently that you've enjoyed the most or had a profound impact? Well, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm, re- you know I'm reading Ryan Holiday's book, The Daily Stoic, mm-hmm. and that's helping me. Yeah. I just like it. It gives me a reminder every day. 
365 days. Yeah, I, I just like that a lot. And, you know, I, I did a book club. Uh, my book club, we did meditations. Uh, right, Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, yeah. and th- obviously he's a, one of the more famous Stoics. So it c- went hand in hand with that. So I love, you know, Ryan Holiday's Daily Stoic. I'm reading a book right now. It's, I think, called Supreme Commander. It's about Dwight Eisenhower by Stephen Ambrose. And I am just enjoying that book so much. You know, uh, Dwight, you know, I don't have the, um, let's say, the charismatic personality. I'm not the dynamic kind of leader and the, you know, the John Wayne, you know, kind of fire up the troops kind of. Um, and Eisenhower is the kind of leader that just fits me well. And, and um, there's someone at, at work that is more my style, that I want to build this person's confidence, that you could be a great leader. So I got this person, the, the Eisenhower book. I'm reading, you know, we'd read it, and then we're kind of going over the points together. And I just love how he led. Um, his humbleness, his ability to make others, you know, be at their greatest. Um, he could deal with all kinds of personalities and didn't take it personal, didn't have to, be, you know, and he gave the credit to everyone, and when there was blame, he took it firsthand. I mean, I just love that. Uh, so that book's firing me up right well, I'm now. I'm going to have to pick that one up. You, you told me Eisenhower was an S-type personality, yeah. which is, a, so we use the DISC profile in our business. Yeah. I think you do too, so that's a, that's a useful thing, uh, S-leaders, studying S-leaders. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just, just funny to think about. Um, one last question. If you could go back and tell your 20-year-old something, something. Oh, start w- therapy. That would be it. Go to therapy. Sooner Spe- the better. It right. You know, you invested a lot in your school. This is more important than your school. Take whatever, make the investment, do it religiously. Um, it'll make you better in every which way, a better leader, better parent, a better father. And just, yeah, I would say that. And the number one uh, piece of career advice, somebody seeking career advice early in life. It doesn't matter. I hear it all the time with young people. I'm making this, I'm making that. You know, they're just leaving for a job because I didn't get the promotion. At the beginning, be in an environment that's pushing you every day to be your very best and, and that you're learning and growing the most so that you could be the best 10 years down the road. That when it st- really matters. Um, just push yourself, you know, compete with yourself to be the best. Yes, of yourself. you can grow and develop. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I agree with that. Well, Gary, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's been great That's having you on the podcast today. Yep. We'll have to do this again. Oh, uh, of course. Well, thank you. You asked some great questions. And Sebastian, I just really like our friendship and knowing you all these years and all these years in the future. It's going to be fun. Appreciate you.